This is a Federal News Network podcast. More and more, the Defense Department's weapon systems must be cyber resilient. Now there's a publicly available webinar for science and engineering people that outlines what DOD calls its cyber resilient weapon systems body of knowledge. The webinar takes about an hour to get through. Melinda Reed is Director for Resilient Systems in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. She talked with Tom Temin. The Engineering Cyber Resilient Weapon Systems Body of Knowledge was initiated in 2019 as a two-year Defense Acquisition Workforce Development Account Prototype Project, and its purpose is to provide a resource of authoritative engineering best practices, methods, design patterns, and standards to assist our science and technology managers and engineers across the department, industry, and academia on approaches associated with implementing cybersecurity requirements in our DOD systems. Right. So is there a difference fundamentally between engineering in the cybersecurity for normal information technology systems and for weapons systems, which maybe use different languages and have different requirements? So I would say it a little differently. It's more on how we talk about it, and it's along the lines of those operational constraining environments and where that technology is implemented, where those requirements are implemented, and making those thoughtful design trades so that we can appropriately implement and integrate those cybersecurity requirements to safeguard and protect our systems and the technology and the information that resides in them. Just to make an example, say a gun that's aboard a naval ship is more than just a mechanical and chemical structure. There's a lot of electronics that goes with it. There's a lot of logistics that goes with it. That's all embodied in the systems below the deck, so to speak, that you can't see. That's the type of system you're talking about? Yes, that's right. That is a good example. And the ship itself or the aircraft, our partners are the military services as well as they try to satisfy those cyber requirements. I would even say that we are already doing a lot of them. It's understanding where those pieces fit in and then what are those design patterns so that the engineering and science and technology community can have some very constructive conversations with our information uh, cyber community so that they can understand what are the right technology solutions for those cyber requirements that would fit in those systems and where would be the best place to put them. Right. So in some sense, this is similar to the NIST publications, National Institute of Standards and Technology, but for a very specific class of system that exists only in the military. Yes, that's right. And I think one could almost equate it to some cyber physical systems because we do have those same types of challenges and translation opportunities for our systems that we use even within our own homes. So leveraging and being able to talk about those maybe industrial control type systems with our weapon system community, if we have these added constraints and these additional environmental environments that the systems need to operate in and, and where those decisions to make those risks make the most sense. Sure. We're speaking with Melinda Reed. She's Director for Resilient Systems in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. And let's talk about the webinar now created out of this body of knowledge. What was the purpose there? How did it get created and who should view it? 
So the webinar is a fantastic opportunity with DAU because DAU has been our partner throughout this whole journey of the means by which we can educate and train our science and technology managers and our engineers who have to critically think about implementing these requirements. The webinar provides that opportunity to share, to get that message out, to solicit input feedback on the materials within that cruise book of knowledge. And our partners also include industry. So industry has been a very, very good partner throughout all of this, and well as academia. So as part of that webinar, it helps us move that forward on that journey with our engineering community and many others who are interested in looking at the resources and the materials and thinking about implementing those requirements which can be a challenge in these constraining environments that these systems, again, have to operate in. This would then be something useful not just to operators within DOD, but also to contractors and subs, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That is our intent. And I know that or have seen and industry has been very much a partner through uh, the National Defense Industry Association, helping us better understand where they are seeing some opportunities for us as a whole to better inform where their challenges are so that we can strike the right balance in educating our own workforce. So they are seeing areas where we can strike a balance that helps better standardize the approaches that we're using. So while we don't have all of the solutions in there today, that is the goal that we're working towards, is just increasing that standardization and also perhaps, if not being able to get a straight standardization, it's more understanding where those differences might reside. Now, is there any danger in this being publicly available that some people that wish us ill could also view the same webinar? So the Cruise Book of Knowledge is purposely developed to be unclassified and public, and so there is no intention of putting anything in there that speaks directly to any of our weapons systems, but more to talk about the practices and the standards that are available publicly. We are not trying to recreate anything new. We are trying to ensure that our workforce, our industry has a, an understanding of what is the latest guidance, because I know that there is a lot of guidance out there, and some of it, even because we're in this digital age, some of it is very old guidance. And so one of the other purposes of this cruise book of knowledge is to make sure that we're using the current and latest authoritative sources. But the intent is to keep it at that policy guidance and standards and not to go into any of the controlled, unclassified information aspects of it. Right. No stinger schematics in there available, I suppose. <laughs> no. No, no, absolutely not. And what's the uptake been so far? Have a lot of people looked at it? Yes, we have gotten huge user traffic. And each time that we go and do a an outreach event, the traffic increases. And so with that traffic and with the individuals coming in and using that cruise box, it also gives us opportunities to better understand what they are seeking so that we can build in and add in additional 
resources that they might be looking for. So it helps us to target where we should be focusing on resources that should be going in there. So it is a great opportunity for us to facilitate and educate and train our technical community and be able to translate and understand from the cyber side how they can implement or what they can use to implement to meet those requirements. Melinda Reed is Director for Resilient Systems in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. We'll post this interview along with a link to the webinar at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted 
they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, 
always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.